All right. I'm going to pray, and uh, we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for your tenderness toward us, your mercy toward us. Father, thank you that uh, you are Father, that you are good, uh, that as we draw near to you, you are unafraid of the baggage that we bring, the the sin that we bring. Uh, the shortcomings that we bring, Father. You know what we are when you call us. And uh, we thank you for your heart for us that way. We love you. Amen. Uh, We've got a lot of sickos around right now, um, so just keep that in prayer. Uh, Today is the first day I feel like a human in the last few days. Stanskys are down and out. Um, So anyway, so if I'm hacking and snotting up here, just try to ignore it. Um, So last week, we talked uh, a little bit, but we watched a video um, that largely addressed becoming, what I I would say, becoming good at repenting and developing a repentant heart. And so this week, I want to talk about how do we become good at repenting, what is it that prevents us from becoming good at repenting? I'll share some of my own uh, struggles, some of the causes um, that prevented me from becoming good at this, my misunderstandings. And um, because I really believe that repenting is fun, and it's it's really good, it's enjoyable, and uh, it's a guaranteed way to stay near to God. And I don't think that most of us, probably when you hear the word repent, that that's the first thing that comes to your mind, like, oh, good, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I didn't repent. Um, it's usually like, you know, an idiot, what did I do now? Or um, I don't want to have to do that, I'm going to be in trouble, right? I think we typically associate repentance with I'm in trouble, and um, usually that correlates with God's upset with me, he's angry with me, he's dissatisfied with me. So um, we're going to talk about becoming great repenters. Because a broken and contrite heart, God will never reject. And if there's one thing that you can develop this year, develop a broken and contrite heart, a repentant heart, and make it that way for your whole life. It's not a season. It's not something you go through when you first get saved where you repent of the really big stuff you did, like adultery and murder and... Uh, you know, child trafficking, which are huge. It's, I'm going to be a repenter for my whole life. I'm going to have a tender heart before God. And whatever he brings to light and convicts me of, I'm going to press toward him immediately, and I'm going to enjoy it as he, as he deals with it and heals me of it. That's repentance. <clears throat> so I'm going to start by talking about the prodigal son. You guys ever heard this story? No? Okay, good. Um, there are two characters in the prodigal son, right? I mean, no, there's more than two characters. Thanks. Um, there's two sons in the prodigal son, right? Okay, now I'm good. There's the wayward son, uh, Kansas, and um, there's the older brother. And so the wayward son, <clears throat> we know this story, and we usually refer to it when we're telling someone else's testimony because that's not us, um, right? We're, you know... Well, that was me, but most of you guys it did not apply to. The wayward son was the guy who took all his life's possessions. He took all that God had given him, and he went out, and he squandered it in wild living. He lived like a moron, right? We all, none of us did that, but we all have friends who did. And so we pray the wayward son, the prodigal son, over them repeatedly. Yeah, that's, that's good. And so the wayward son comes home. And what? The father is angry? No, we know that's not the case. The father's waiting for him, watching for him. As the son approaches, the father runs to him and restores him. Right? He restores him. He slaughters the fatted calf. He has a party. Now, how many of us think that the father encouraged the wayward son to go out and do the same thing the next day? I don't either. My guess would be that he began to restore the son and establish right living for his life to teach him a better way to go. 
But the point of the story is to say, when we come to God in failure, he runs to us. He's waiting for us to turn this way. He's not chasing us. So if we turn and start to go away, he's watching, he's waiting, but we have the responsibility to change direction and come toward him. When we do, he's waiting to meet us on the way. The father in the story is not talking about behavior or failure when the son comes down the path. What were you thinking? You idiot. Do you know how much money you just wasted? You could have been here the whole time. We're loaded. We got fatted calves. This is the good life. No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about, I'm so glad that you're near me again. He goes out and he tells the older brother, who's the second one we're going to talk about. He says, hey, let's celebrate. Your brother has come home. He's in the father's house. He's near me. That's the key. The older brother is the faithful Pharisee. That's how I I see the older brother. The older brother is the faithful Pharisee. Now, keep in mind that most of the Pharisees started out genuine. And a lot of Pharisees actually were converted into followers of Jesus during his time. I know when we talk about Pharisees, we usually think of the uh, angry, grumpy guys in black cloaks, you know. Um, but some of them were genuine. But the faithful Pharisee that's here in the older brother, he allowed his heart to become distant from the father, even though he had close proximity to what the father was doing. So think about that for a second. It goes to show that even though we may be near to what God is doing in the earth and a part of something really cool and amazing in the Father's house, our heart can still grow distant if our intent is not on nearness to the Father and instead becomes about the activities that we do for the Father. So the older brother's heart became distant to the Father because he concerned himself with his activities. He concerned himself with what he was doing. Do you remember what he said to the father when the father came out? All this time, I've been here serving you. The older brother is the faithful Pharisee because rather than be enjoying the father's presence and the nearness to the father and in the father's house, though he was in close proximity to what God was doing, his heart had become about the service he was providing rather than nearness to his father. That's a really important key. So I want to take off a little bit from the, um, the wayward son, Kansas, and um, talk about being born again, right? So how I look at it is the younger brother comes back into the father's house And he is born again. This is when he has his experience of being born from above. John 3 says that you must be born again or born from above. So when this, how many of you guys ever had a friend or knew me when I was 20 um, that got saved from a wayward lifestyle? Do you guys ever have any of those friends? Um, Nobody? Okay. So I'll tell you about them. Um, they're a mess. They're a, they're a mess. So they come in from, they're radical in their drinking. They're radical in their lusts. They're uh, radical in their pursuits of profanity. They're masters in rebellion and manipulation. I mean, trust me, it's how we live before we know Christ. And suddenly we come running into the father's house. He comes running out to meet us. Boom! We meet Jesus and we're born from above. At that moment, we are literally born from above. We're born into a new kingdom, right? We know that, yeah? So we suddenly become children of God. Where we err is, I'm 25 years old when I get saved, or I'm 19 years old when I get saved, or... I'm 35 years old when I'm born of God. I'm 35 years old. So I pretty well got it figured out. I got a handle on life. It's the younger brother. He comes running back into the father's house. This dude is a train wreck. He gets born from above, and he then starts the process 
of transformation, or what I'll call maturation, because he is literally a newborn in the kingdom of God. He is a newborn. He is not born as a 25-year-old man. He is born, though 25-year-old, having walked on the earth, he's born a newborn into the kingdom of God. This is essential that we understand this. Repeatedly throughout Scripture, we're called the children of God. In the, in the prophets, he talks about the different states in which he finds people and how he takes them in and he spends time nurturing them and restoring them and building them up. And if you remember here a few Sundays ago, he talks about weaning children and the importance of when a child is weaned. And throughout Scripture, there are images that demonstrate to us that when we're born of God, though we may be 20 years old or 25 years old, We are newborns in his kingdom, and we are just beginning the process of our transformation into his image and likeness. God knows that. We usually don't. The Father sees that and sees us that way, and we usually fail to. And it becomes a great source of frustration and danger for us. It's probably my child screaming. Um, It is. All right. Amen. Amen. I know I have a two-year-old. It's a really good, really good opportunity here. I have a two-year-old. I also know her personality. I expect this to happen every time she goes with a babysitter. Sometimes I get a really nice surprise, and it doesn't happen like when she stays with Mary. She doesn't freak out. Two people on the earth and Michelle that she doesn't freak out around. But other than that, when my two-year-old goes with a babysitter, meltdown city. I expect it. I don't get angry with her at it. Do I get frustrated sometimes that I can't get a little bit of alone time? Sure. Do I get angry at her? Mm -mm. I count on it. I plan on it. Why? Because she's two. So I want to actually look at the process of birth and of infancy and of toddlership. Um, So first let's look at pregnancy just real, real briefly. God orchestrated all this stuff, right? He built all this stuff. He designed all this stuff. So we should learn from what he designed because there's more in it than just, you know, popping out, you know, babies for baby daddy. Um, First of all, pregnancy takes time. Uh, It's a process that can't be hurried. Sorry. It's a process that can't be hurried. Similarly, Someone coming to the Lord goes through a similar birthing process. And the prophets talk about this in the OT. The the half of the Bible we usually stay away from. The OT talks about birth and the, the coming forth of what God has planned. And when someone's coming to the Lord, we should look at it as though it's progressive. It happens in steps. It doesn't happen typically all at once. There's a a culmination, and, you know, we love the services where someone gets up and they tell their testimony about how, you know, I was one of those rough living drunks, and I was down at, you know, Big Bond Strip Club, and every weekend, and some dude showed up to me at the parking lot, and he jumped started my car, and he tell me I love Jesus. And, you know, and it's a process over the course of time where God is preparing something in someone and then birthed, and they're born of God. So just keep that in mind when you're, when you're spending time with people that don't know the Lord, every conversation you don't have, or every conversation you have doesn't have to be the last conversation they have as an unbeliever. Sow seeds. Understand that this takes time, that God will bring about his spirit in them in his time. You know, born, being born of the spirit is a supernatural work of God. You can't make it happen. So we're forced to work on his timetable anyway. Second thing I want to say, birth is messy. You guys ever been in on a birth? Good Lord. I'm telling you, the kids are, they're not cute uh, when they come out. I'm sorry. I mean, parents think so because they're theirs. But if you're honest, you're a liar. The kids got gunk on them. Um, I mean, there's blood everywhere. It's like. Somebody just killed a cow in there. Um, there's, it's nasty in there. That, I remember the, when Elisa was born, the, the, you know, first the kid comes out, and she's a mess. 
And I'm just like, I'm in shock, you know? I'm kind of, ah, I'm giggly. The doctor's like, you want to hold her? You dry her first, you clean her. And uh, so then, you know, she's kind of toweling her off while I'm holding her. I'm like, yucky. And then the doctor is over here, and she's fishing out this placenta thing, which is, happens to be attached by a cord. And she's like, hey, do you want to come look? Do I want to vomit? No, I don't want to look at the thing. You did deal with it. Put it away. This is terrifying. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. It is messy. Holy moly. Birth is messy. I'm sorry, Mark, but someone had to tell you. Um, it's messy. It's, it's intense. And when this child comes, they are far from able to do anything of themselves. When the child is born, they're beautiful to their parents. But to everyone else, they're just kind of like, I got to tell you a story. I had an uncle, um, I have a cousin that was born. And um, this kid, I consider one of the greatest comeback stories in American history. Um, he was born and he looked like, uh, you know, he was the child of a baboon that had been beaten. And I mean, it was like the ugliest kid I've ever, I'm, I'm serious. He, I mean, the kid is like a stud now. He's extremely handsome. That's why he's one of the great comeback stories in America. But my uncle... His, his dad's brother uh, came to the hospital to visit, you know, right after the baby was born, day of. And, you know, the kid's mom is in the bed, and his dad's over there kind of hanging out. And his dad's brother walks over to the crib, and he's like, oh, I want to see. He kind of like, whoa! And he literally, whoa! And so his sister-in-law didn't talk to him for about 18 months. <laughs> but this kid was, he wasn't cute to anybody but mom and dad. Well, that's largely us often when we're born from above. We, get, we come to Jesus. We're born of God, but we're a mess. We cause a lot of other people a lot of pain, a lot of strife. We put uh, difficulty on relationships. And because it usually happens when we're, you know, some of us it was younger, but some of us really got grabbed by God when we were like 18, 19, 20, and we kind of go, mm, um, I'm 18, 19, 20. You know, I, I grew up in church. I pretty well got it figured out. So I think I was born advanced. I was born into the 10-year-old class. And it's just not true. And the, the less we understand that, the more difficulty we're going to cause people. And we're going to cause ourselves. When we're born, we are beautiful to the Father, but we are still a mess. And we are still very dependent. Babies, which we have, we have a plethora of babies. That means a lot, if you guys have ever watched uh, The Three Amigos. Um, how many piñatas? Um, and there, there are a lot of babies around. No one expects anything out of these babies. We don't expect them to talk. We don't expect them to be able to walk. We don't, I mean, some of us expect them to be able to, like, do dishes and, you know, when they're, like, 18 months. But those are high expectations, even for, you know, some of our children that are born advanced and extra special. Um, Most children don't even walk until they're around a year. Some, you know, might be a little bit younger. Some are, like, seven, like I was. Um... Some kids uh, don't talk until they're two or three, and when they do talk, they either need an older sibling or a mom to interpret everything that they're saying. Um, They get into everything. This is us, guys. This is us as we mature in Christ. We, when we're born of God, do not, we're not born into the fullness of what we'll be, regardless of our age, when we're born from above. We are born as newborns. We are dependent. We need God to give us every breath, every bite, every morsel. We usually expect more from ourselves, and so we cause ourselves a great deal of frustration. We also cause him a lot of frustration because we think we already know everything. But he never sees us that way. God always sees us rightly. He sees us born as infants, 
as newborns, as infants. He sees us grow into toddlers. He sees us grow into seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds and then teenagers, God forbid. Um, He knows where we are as we're growing, and he's okay with that. He doesn't need us to be fully mature in the first three to four years of our relationship with him. And we're not. And he doesn't expect us to be. And he knows we can't be. We are usually the ones that put that requirement on ourselves. And it brings us a great deal of frustration and feelings of failure throughout. Throughout the time that kids are growing, the way that they grow in understanding and develop appropriate behavior is by staying near to their parents. Two-year-olds aren't born knowing what not to drop off the counter. They're not born knowing that if you throw the vase across the room, it's going to shatter. They learn that either experientially or by someone instructing them. How do you instruct them? By being near to them. See, what usually happens, though, with kids, they drop something off of the counter, and it shatters, and mom and dad go, Idiot! That was my china! I don't even know where it came from, but it was my china! It was like 200 years old, or I don't know, that one might have come from Target, but I mean... And the kid then suddenly knows never to drop something off the counter, but they didn't grow in understanding. And the only thing they got from it was figuring out that dad gets really mad if I drop something. And suddenly they set their hearts to not make mistakes ever again. And that is why most of us have no clue as to how to really repent Because we learn behaviorally to avoid at all costs making mistakes because mistakes make mom and dad mad and they get us in trouble. And that's not how our father operates. Appropriate behavior is developed by staying near to our parents. In Jewish culture, a boy was his father's apprentice as he grew up. Remember Jesus, you know, worked with his father. He was his apprentice as he grew up, learning the family business and the way of life among his people. This happens by staying near to his father. We haven't talked about the teenage years, um, mostly because I'm just afraid to. That's, I'm just not willing to go there. Um, but in Jewish culture, people did not hit maturity until 30. At 30 years old, that's when a son was turned over the keys to the father's business and, and declared as the one who would now handle it. 30 years. How many of us right now have a 30-year vision for our maturation before we come into the fullness of what God intends for us? I ask this because I want to know, are you giving yourself the same measure of grace that the Father's giving you in regard to how you're living? Or do you live frustrated with yourself, disappointed with yourself? I should be here. I should be doing more. I'm not where I should be. And the father's like, you're three. I'm just really happy that you show up to see me a couple times a week. And that when you fall down, you run toward me instead of away from me. You're three years old. I'm not giving you car keys yet. You're not starting a family. You're three. Why do you think you should be living like a 30-year-old? Do we give ourselves the same grace and see ourselves the same way that the Father sees us as we grow? Highly unlikely. So I say all of this to say there isn't a parent in the world who expects their newborn or two or three-year-old to have the maturity of a wise 30-year-old. I've had conversations with parents where (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm talking with them saying, You can't expect the same things out of your three-year-old, your four-year-old, that you expect out of yourself. You can't expect them to know that, hey, I'm tired. I need to go to bed of my own accord. Someone needs to teach them that. And if you yell at them when they won't do what you commanded them to do, they'll never understand why. 
You can't expect a three-year-old to have the same understanding, maturity, and wisdom as you expect a 30-year-old. God doesn't. Why would you? It's amazing, you know, um, when we have, you know, we have these little kids in the church, and, um, you know, for most of us, we, it took some getting used to when, you know, you're, you're talking and you're teaching and, um, you know, there's kids running and screaming and people freak out, you know, like now we get kids in worship and if, if somebody's moving, you know, it's kind of like, holy cow, what do we do? Well, that's to be expected of children, and it's appropriate for children to behave differently than 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds do. Thank God, huh? And in many ways, we need to become more like them, but in other ways, they're becoming more like us. Childishness is being changed into maturity. Childlikeness is being changed for us from stodgy and crusty to filled with joy and faith. No one expects a teenager to have the same discipline as a 40-year-old. Good Lord, in our culture, nobody expects a 30-year-old to have the same discipline as a 40-year-old. Um, <clears throat> why would we do that to ourselves? We've walked with God maybe intimately, intensely. I'm talking about really. I'm not talking about I went to church and I was a Christian. I'm talking about I've known God and his involvement in my life intimately for years Is it a 30-year vision? And are you giving yourself the space, the grace to grow and allow God to enjoy you as he changes you? Or are you trying to be perfect at the outset? We tend to do two things. We tend to overestimate our spiritual maturity. You know, we want to be leaders. We want to be advanced. We don't want to be dependent. I don't want to need God that way. I don't want to have to hang on him for every breath. I don't want to have to be in his face repenting minute after minute, day after day. So I overestimate my spiritual maturity. I tell myself I'm farther along than I really am, but then I start to put standards on my life that I can't attain to, and I live in constant frustration with myself. And yet the Father's just waiting for us to see ourselves as we are Because he really enjoys the process with us as we grow. You know, I was talking about kids earlier. Um, Have you ever baked with a little kid? Or cooked with a little kid? Um, It's a disaster. Um, It is, you know, so... Man, my sister-in-law and brother, <clears throat> their their daughter is like the world's greatest cleaner. She's like five, you know. And um, But when she was like two and three, they had her up there washing dishes. And I'm just like, this is a horrible idea. I mean, things are going to get broken. And, and then I remember the first couple times we tried to like cook or bake. And, you know, Elisa or Yaya wanted to break an egg. <clears throat> this is going well. You know, hey, can I crack the egg? And they go to crack it on the counter, and before they get it there, you know, they punch their hand through the thing, and so it's spraying everywhere, and by the time it gets to the counter, it's just chaos. And so you have, you have a choice in this moment as a parent. Do you react with, oh, God, and I can't handle this, and so now my kid grows up in front of the TV while I do all the cooking because I can't handle the process of them learning to cook. And then you raise a child who has no clue what they're doing in a kitchen, Or do you say, I can handle the mess that gets made in the process of them learning to do what they're going to need to do to survive in life? We tend to overestimate our spiritual maturity. We don't understand that when we try things for God, often we're going to make a mess just like a little kid trying to crack an egg. We think we're going to nail it, hit it out of the park on our first go-round, and it's not the way it works. He understands that we usually fail to. And because we fail to, we fail to get good at repenting because we don't want to make a mistake. The second thing we do is, this is huge, we do not understand so often that our Father 
is not looking for behavioral excellence. He wants a heart that will be near him in every circumstance. See, we want to get so that we're behaviorally perfect, so we don't have to repent anymore because we don't understand that repentance is good. So we want to be perfect so we don't have to repent, and we start to get ourselves into the pharisaical mindset that my life is about what I do. It's about performance, about behavior. It's about action, and it's not. Nearness overflows into godly action. But when your life is focused on action, you will soon find yourself distant from God. Our Father is not looking for behavioral excellence. He wants a heart that is near to him in every circumstance. He changes our behavior by by his nearness to us. The wayward son ran away and had to turn back, but the older brother never left, and his heart was turned away as well. Interesting here, because if you remember Matthew 23, Jesus was really harsh to the Pharisees. This is a picture of Jesus' tenderness to the Pharisees as well. Each one in a different circumstance. Jesus knows what each one needs and how to speak to both their hearts. Not to say that it always produces fruit, but it's to say that you can't build a formula for how God works in anyone's life. And the third thing of part two, point two, was that we don't understand our Father isn't looking for behavioral excellence. He wants a heart that is near to him in every circumstance. Is that proximity to what God is doing does not necessarily mean that a heart is turned toward him. You can go to some of the, you can go to revival and not be a part of it. God is looking for hearts that are near to him. He's not looking for our behavioral perfection. It is the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. Why? Because he's not angry when we fail. He knows we're going to. I was going through Romans again, and uh, Romans 6, you guys all remember Romans 6, where Paul says, hey, shall we go on sinning then, so that grace may abound, right? And he says, by no means! He's like, those idiots, who comes up with this stuff? Let's just stop for a second, though. There was such a revelation of the kindness of the Father going on, that people were able to take it to an extreme that said, hey, God loves to forgive, Well, if he loves to forgive, I want to go find some new opportunities to let him do what he loves to do. And Paul says, this is stupidity. It's not the point isn't to let you continue on sinning. But they actually had a glimpse of something that we don't in that, hey, God loves to forgive. He loves repentance. He's not waiting there. You guys ever, you know, come home late? And uh, never mind, I'm not talking about the hockey locker room here, but there are certain people who have come home late. You know, they had a few brews, you know, a couple beers, too many. Um, you know, maybe there were, uh, there's a little bit of perfume on them. Can't tell you why. Uh, maybe they had a little. I've actually been pulled into my driveway by the police a couple times. And um, I remember the police pulling into my driveway with the lights on and my, like, 12-year-old sister standing on the porch in her PJs and my brother and my mom and and my dad I think he was just sleeping um he kind of figured it was coming anyway um but so I kind of uh came in to the kingdom thinking that when I found out I was being convicted of something I saw God like this. And that if he was convicting me, I had to walk down that long, lonely aisle to the front, and he was standing there waiting for me to get up to the top of the porch so he could grab me by the ear, take me inside, let me know all the things I'd done wrong that I already knew, and send me to bed without my supper. 
and that's not our father. We see him and the prodigal son waiting at the end of the aisle for someone to move toward him, and he runs, embraces them. And I remember when God showed me that uh, for me, and uh, it changed entirely the way that I viewed repentance. And I'm, I'm really good at repenting now. Um, happens daily. So again, back to the Romans 6 thing here. Um, God loves to forgive. <clears throat> when we struggle, fail, or have done horrible evil, he loves to forgive. Why? Why? Why wouldn't he be disappointed? That's only natural to think, I expect so much of you, I've given you so much. Come on, the least you could do is not be an idiot. Why doesn't God feel that way? Because the act of repentance demonstrates faith. The act of repentance demonstrates that we have faith that he is excited to see us, that he wants to forgive us. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, which we do, usually trembling when we've been caught in sin, and that he rewards those who seek him. Our coming to him, even out of the place of sin, leads to our reward. It's ridiculous. You wonder why it's good news. Our confidence in his desire to forgive shows faith, and that pleases God and causes him to reward us. It's in the Bible, guys. It also allows Jesus to receive the reward of his suffering. Jesus wasn't crucified so he could forgive murder, adultery, and the really big drunks. That wasn't like, okay, I'll take the big ones. You know, I mean, I'll take Jeffrey Dahmer, but, you know, the guy who exaggerates a little bit over there, or, you know, you who you're just grumpy in the morning, and uh, no way. I'll take the big ones, but not the little ones. Jesus was crucified so he could forgive us of our bad attitude, our bad manners, our grumpiness before 6 a.m. Amen. Our Immense need for coffee um, or for that little exaggeration that is as severe as the deepest lies of Lucifer. He was crucified to forgive us of all of it. He was crucified so that we could be made completely whole. So when we stop repenting, 25% into our wholeness because we believe we should be spiritually mature and we're frustrated with ourselves when we're not and we refuse to go to God when we fail and we refuse to go to God when we struggle and we refuse to go to God when he convicts us. We're not giving him the fullness of what he paid for. It's also an act of faith Because we understand that our standing before God is not dependent upon our performance. Our standing before God is based on Jesus' performance. Have you guys ever had a relationship like that? Have you guys ever ever had a relationship with an authority like that? where you can try something and completely mess it up and you feel like you've endangered the relationship and you go to this person and say, I made a mistake. And they go, (laughs) I know. And you're like, are we cool? I I didn't put you there because I figured you had it all figured out. I put you there because I expected you to figure it out and make mistakes along the way. Our relationship isn't endangered by your performance. Our relationship is solidified because I trust you. Why does he trust us? Because we've trusted him. Our standing before God isn't dependent upon our performance. It isn't dependent upon whether or not we exaggerate or are a grump in the morning or have a bad attitude with our boss. 
That's why we can get really good at repenting. Because when I mess up, I can come to my father and know he's just as excited about me in that moment as the moment where I just had my greatest victory. The moment where I just had my greatest conflict and I came through and I acted godly and I didn't do anything stupid and I didn't say anything stupid and I held my tongue and I know God's pleased with me, the moment that I come to the Lord in repentance, he's just as delighted in me. Why? Because my position with God is based on what Jesus did for me on the cross. And it is completely unaffected by my performance, good or bad. I'll be rewarded in eternity for the things that I do, but my position with God is unaffected by my performance. So let's go through this again. Stinkers, right. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He did not die for a group of people that had it mostly together. He died for rebels, murderers, idolaters, adulterers. And no matter how extreme we acted that out, we were that in one measure or another. Scripture is very clear on that. And yet, he said, that's the one I want. I see them as a mess. If you guys have never read Ezekiel 16, read it tonight. Ezekiel 16, he sees us lying in a puddle of our own filth, a mess. And he goes, that's the one I want. I know when I go grab this mess that I have a mess in front of me. But you know what? As long as that mess will stay close to me, I'm going to enjoy the process. I'm going to enjoy the growth. I'm going to enjoy the walk. When they mess up, I'm not going to get angry because I know it's coming. While we were yet his enemies, rebelling against him, he then reconciled us to God. He didn't wait till we started to like him. And then, okay, (laughs) deal. We were rebels and put our faith in what Christ had done and he reconciled us to God. How much more then shall we be saved, made whole by his life? He suffered for us when we were rebellious and hard and full of sin. Because of his sacrifice, he made it possible for us in that moment to be fully accepted before God. Our position was made concrete before God because of Jesus' sacrifice for us while we were rebels. Our maturation, however, is only beginning. Our transformation is only beginning. Once we've believed that he is sufficient for us, his sacrifice was sufficient for us to be, sacri- to be accepted by God, in that moment we are born anew. But we are not suddenly without behavioral flaw. Come on. Really? I mean, do we really think we are? Our birth from above, birth from above, Wow. Our birth from above is the beginning of our transformation into his image and likeness. So here are some tips that we can get used to. Get used to being wrong and saying, I was wrong. This is one of the greatest gifts you will ever develop in your entire life. This isn't to say don't try things. Please, don't, don't get that. This will enable you to try more things. Get used to being wrong and saying I was wrong. This brings freedom for exploration. Because you can jump into something wholeheartedly and have God go, swing and a miss. And you go, I was wrong. Right back to him, jumping into the next thing. He is not afraid of that. Get used to being wrong and saying I was wrong. Get comfortable making mistakes and saying, I made a mistake. Get good at repenting and saying, I'm sorry. To God. To God. This isn't about for people. That will overflow automatically. But usually we're better at telling a person, I was wrong or I'm sorry, than we are to God. Establish it with him first. 
That's the first commandment first, and then the second commandment, it'll fulfill itself. Get good at trying and failing and getting up again and trying and failing and getting up again and again and again and again and again and again and again. You know, I love being around parents here while kids are learning to walk. And I remember, I remember hearing about this a few years ago, and it's totally true. You know, when a little kid is learning to walk, in our setting here, there's usually actually about 15 parents around standing and watching a kid take his first steps. And, you know, most parents are celebrating. He's not really walking. I mean, he might have, like, grr, grr, pow, into the ground, you know, and the parents are like, he walked! And then, no, he just fell forward and got his feet in the way first. Um, that's not a real walk. But the parents are so excited. The kid just wiped out, smashed his face off the ground. He's, there's a mess everywhere. He's screaming and crying, and mom and dad are like, Woohoo! Greatest child of the world award. How many of you have that same feeling when you fail and you fall? How many of you feel God's feeling for you that way? When you step into something and it's not what you should be doing and you take a step and you fall and you feel like a failure, how many of us feel God go, you took two steps and completely fell on your face? I don't care that you fell. You took two steps and you never had before. Come on, try to take three. He's not talking about the fall. He's talking about the walk, the progress, and he's enjoying it as it happens. God is not a father who sits waiting for his kids to make an error. He's not a father that waits for them to take two steps and fall and go, I knew you couldn't do it. You should have just stayed in your crib. He says, two steps. Next week, three. Next week, you'll be able to get into that cabinet over there and start breaking things. And then we'll celebrate that. But we have to see him seeing us this way. If we don't, we'll never enjoy him as he enjoys our growth, our development, and our maturation. Even as we mature and even as you enter into the fullness in 30 years, these these attributes should never depart from your life. These attributes of being wrong, making mistakes, trying and failing, I'm sorry I was wrong, These are things that should be foundational in your life forever. Most importantly, though, get good at being enjoyed by God. When we're near to him, he's enjoying us. When I started out as a um, new Christian, uh, there's a funny quote, Ern McManus, I I got to hear him speak in like 2003 um, at a conference at Willow Creek. And he says, uh, you know, He's talking about, as a new Christian, the Bible wasn't a sword for me, it was a club. And uh, that, was, that was me, you know. Um, I was really good at just, like, beating the tar out of people with the Scripture. And uh, I was reckless, wild, complete loose cannon. And um, I actually felt a few times where God, he was laughing, watching me. I mean, I was making a mess, but he was laughing. He's actually enjoying it. I, got, I had to feel that a couple times, and I, didn't, I was kind of offended at it. Um, But he was enjoying at me. He was enjoying watching me. You know what's amazing about God? He's not threatened by our mistakes. His reputation isn't being endangered. Guys, we get so worried about Christians being perfect and not offending anyone. We're so worried that God's reputation can somehow be harmed. We can't harm his reputation. He's the I am. Jesus was the manifestation of the Father, and when people saw the Father for what he really was, they crucified him. So even the most perfect representation of God does not mean that men will embrace him. God's not concerned about protecting his reputation. He's concerned about his children staying near him and growing with him. I had to get really good at apologizing for all the damage I was doing um, as a new Christian. But as long as I was willing to right my wrongs when I erred, which was constant, um, he was enjoying me. 
I'd go have a conversation with some. I remember we had a really good idea. Um, I was uh, I drank a lot um, before I came to Jesus, and um, so I had this thing where you know if I had one uh, alcoholic pop, I was going to have about twelve to nineteen, and there was no like two or three. It was one nineteen, and so I came up with a really good idea that <clears throat> after I got saved, I think I should do evangelism in the p- local pubs. Um, that a lot of people heard a lot of things um, because I became really verbal uh, the more pops that I drank. Um, and it wasn't really an effective ministry tactic since most of the time the people I was trying to convert to Jesus would carry me home at the end of the night. Um, but God wasn't angry with me. He wasn't frustrated with me because I was trying and failing and I would try and fail, and I'd come and say, oh, I messed up big time last night. They had to carry me home, and I threw up for three hours. And he'd go, I know, it's amazing. Okay. And yet, he would, he would work with me. He would, he would change me. He would change my thinking. He would change my understanding. But it was not out of a place of anger, disappointment, and frustration. He was actually enjoying me. You want to know when I was the farthest from God in my entire walk as a Christian? Is when I was living the holiest life I'd ever lived. Out of my own strength, initiative. I had two seasons of intense pursuit of holiness really early on. <clears throat> One, the first came right before I met my wife. Um, God told me to quit my job. And uh, um, wow, I had no money. I had no nothing. I couldn't cut my hair. Um, I was a train wreck. Uh, but the season was marked with weakness, dependence, and brokenness. He was forcing me to get my everything from him. I had no money. I had nothing. It involved the peeling away of my image as well as people's opinion of me. <clears throat> Failure marked my life, and my reputation was completely destroyed because I'm about to marry someone. Her parents are meeting me, and as long as they've known me, I've never had a job. Way to go, son. I was a total deadbeat, and God was making me appear as a deadbeat to everyone in obedience. Brokenness, weakness, dependence, repentance, constant. No job, no money, no life. And it was the closest to God I'd ever felt in my life. Everything was being peeled away, and I had no choice but to lean toward him. Shortly thereafter, right after I got married in 2006... I went into a really intense season. I was fasting like a madman, hours in prayer, hours in prayer and in the word. Daily, that's not like each month, every day. Fasting hours a day in prayer, in the word. I had no joy. I had no repentance because why should I repent? I was holier than everybody. Um, And it was all performing, wanting to be more spiritually advanced than I truly was. My mind during the first season hadn't changed as to how God viewed me. So I slid back into thinking that he wanted to be near me because I was holy. He wanted to be near me because I was performing so well. He wanted to be near me so he could make me holy and enjoy me in the process. It was about January 2nd, 2007. God let me go on this for like six months. and he spoke to me so clearly. I had just gone through a season where I thought he was going to move powerfully because of how holy I'd lived. And so clearly, I'm sitting on a couch. I I was tired of fasting. I was tired of praying. I was tired of just sitting there. I wasn't doing anything. I might even have been watching television. Sinner. And God says, you are saved by grace through faith, not of works so that no one can boast, not even you. And I'm like, and you know what my literal reaction was? This is the I, total honesty. What about the guy that goes to Messiah Lutheran once every six months? Him too? Yep, him too. I'm fasting. I'm praying. I get nothing for this. Mm-hmm. Oh, all right. And it was a really short conversation, and I, I lost. I gave up. And all of a sudden, I had the most exhilarating experience of my life 
where I realized my performance had nothing to do with how God saw me. I remember coming in here on Sunday morning a couple days later, and I'm yelling at the church during, I used to do the offertory. I was the offertory guy, you know, the guy who's like fishing for money. I'm going to be a really good televangelist one day. But um, so I'm up here, and I'm supposed to be talking about money, and I'm like, he loves you. You messed up. He doesn't care. You're breaking eggs all over the place. Remember the Dale Anstinus egg throwing thing? I don't know where that came from. And, and God, he doesn't care how you behaved if you believe that what Jesus did makes you right with God. You're perfect with him. He has forever made perfect those who are being made holy. He just crushed my holiness and my performance. He said, I enjoy you in the process. You're not more mature than you think you are. You're just a little guy. Yippee! My pursuit of God had become about my efforts and my, my performance. I couldn't repent because I thought that would change my position before God. If I had to go to God and admit I'd done something wrong, I thought it would affect my position before him. I thought it would affect how he saw me. I'm an idiot. I was right, though. It does change our position before God. Failure to repent hardens our heart toward God, and it's the beginning of when we drift away. That's the Pharisees. Their hearts became hard toward God. Why? Because they wouldn't repent because they thought it was all about getting it perfect. (laughs) Failure to repent hardens our heart toward God, and we begin to drift away. That... Is how Pharisees are born. What I've come to learn about God is that he's a secure father. His children's poor behavior doesn't threaten who he is. It doesn't threaten how he sees them. God's children's poor behavior does not threaten how he sees them. What he wants are children that are near him. Because a near heart is a heart that he can change. A distant heart is a heart that grows hard. Our father enjoys watching his children learn to walk and fall often in the process. He loves it. I'm convinced that he loves watching us jump in and try things and just fail miserably. Go, man, you gave that one a try. Get up and try it again. Because I can trust you if you'll keep going. If you'll keep coming back to me when you fail, I'll be able to trust you with something great. Our father is enjoying his children even as they're making messes that will, uh, that he's going to have to help clean up. You know that he'll actually help you clean up the mess you made? You were so afraid to go and tell him about it and he'll actually help you clean up the mess? Like I said earlier, it's like baking with a three-year-old. He wants to work alongside us even before we're ready to handle the responsibility that he gives us. That means that you're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to try something and it's not going to work. You may even sin. Probably not you guys, but I mean other people might. He's not afraid of that. It doesn't affect how he sees you. It doesn't affect your position before him. And it does not affect how he enjoys you so long as you come to him regardless of your circumstance. Success or failure, run to him. Our father enjoys us, wants to be near us, and isn't afraid of our failures or mistakes. Get good at repenting because God enjoys it. Amen. I'm going to pray. Then you can do what you want. Father, I ask you tonight for a new revelation, a new revelation of a good father, of a merciful father. Open our eyes, God, to see how you enjoy us. Open our eyes to see how secure you are, how unafraid you are of our mistakes, our failures, our sin. That the one thing you want is a nearness of our heart to you. That in our greatest victories, we'd run to you first to celebrate. 
that in our greatest failures, our greatest mistakes, our greatest sins, our greatest struggles, that we'd run to you first to share it with you. Daddy, daddy, look what I did. Daddy, daddy, I'm so sorry for what I did. Father, give us hearts that run toward you regardless of what we've done. Let us see you in the desire and the delight that you have in your children just because we believe. We love you. You are so faithful to us. You are such a better father than we are sons and daughters. And we depend on that. We rely on that. We depend on your leadership and knowing where to take us when we don't know. We trust you. We love you, Father. We love you. Amen.